Maybe take a short nap, huh? Why don't we start out the session in prayer, but don't close your eyes if there's a danger of your not opening them for another hour. Father, we just thank you that you are a good God. And while we're here, Father, we pray that we won't give quick answers or formulas, but that we will point to you that Jesus Christ will be exalted and that that there folks here who have a ministry to hurting people, Father, that they might come away with some maybe some new tools or maybe some new ideas. As likewise, they could share with us, Father, ways that you've ministered through them as we've all been pipelines for the water of life to hurting people. Don't let this just be a head thing, Father, that is very interesting or if people agree or disagree, but Father, help it to be a thing of the heart. Take it deeper than just a cerebral thing, Lord. And Father, I pray that as we're talking, that you would remind the folks here of the specific hurting people in their lives that you want to apply these different things in the relationship with them. We just ask, Father, that it would be very prosperous, Father, not just uh, interesting. We pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, Father, and we just ask that the gifts that you've given your body, the church, would be in operation as we share with one another insights that all of us have gained. We, we put the whole time in your hands, Father. It is hard, Father, to stay awake right after lunch, so we just ask that, like that verse says, that you would quicken our mortal bodies, that you would just give us an alertness, even though we've got a full stomach and have just enjoyed that good meal. Father, we just pray that you would be glorified by every word that's said here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I promise not to do a, an extended infomercial, but some of you have been asking, so I'm using that for my excuse. Um, when I was here before, I was in the process of finishing my autobiography. It's out now. It's at the Lydia Press table. It's called The Chain Line. And also, uh, someone was asking if we had any new uh, products since uh, last summer. There's an R&R discipleship program here that you may want to take a look at. It's for churches. It's a year-long discipleship program for those who are rebuilding their lives. And it covers some of the issues like learning how to trust God, getting a clear view of who God actually is. And so if you're involved in a church situation where they're looking for some discipleship materials, you might want to take a look at that. I always like to, I always hate to put labels on things, and I don't like the term hurting people because it makes it sound like somebody has leprosy. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's the only catchphrase rather than having a longer explanation. What I'm talking about is people who have had some sort of tornado come through their life. And the only thing left standing is the foundation. You've all seen those reports from Florida. And there's the the uh, very insightful uh, newspaper or, or television person with the mic in someone's face saying, well, how does it feel now that your whole life is destroyed, you know? But uh, hopefully we're not that kind of helpers to hurting people. Uh, so please don't be offended by the phrase. I'm just talking about people, as I mentioned, who have had things in their past that have really destroyed a lot, and they're in the process of rebuilding that. So that's our terminology. If you, you can see up here the outline for our talk today. It'll be how to be a domino, how to be a mirror, how to be Alka-Seltzer. I don't know if you can see this. This is a newfangled thing. This is how to be a splint. It's a finger splint. And how to be a pitcher. So if you kind of phase out and doze off a minute, you at least pick up a few of these, okay, as we go along. The, the, the uh, handout that you got when we came in is for the second half 
I'd like you to be thinking about some of those questions and share your insights with us later on. We'll be having a time. I, I really feel that a lot of what I learn at seminars is between people this way, not necessarily with the, totally with the speakers. So we'd like you to be thinking about situations that you've been involved in, helping hurting people and, and coming alongside of them. So please feel free in the last half to share that. Also, uh, we'll be having time for questions. Hopefully they're not too hard, then I could answer them. But if they're really tough, I'll pass them on to Lucy or somebody else. So be ready. Let's take a start at our, our outline. It's in your book. Can somebody tell me what page it's on? 110. So far, everybody's awake. Okay. I'd, I'd kind of put this in the form of a job description. Unfortunately, I think that when we talk about discipleship and being a friend, in my mind, those are the same. But the church doesn't know a whole lot about discipleship, unfortunately, in many places. And so, likewise, it's hard to really get any clear understanding of how do you minister to a, a person who has had a lot of devastation in their life? How would that be different from just being a friend to someone who's had pretty smooth sailing in their life? Hopefully we'll be able to highlight real specifics, practical things, rather than just, I don't go in for too much ethereal, you know, like, sounds good on paper, but it doesn't work. The first one is how to be a domino. That's a responsibility. Let others lean on you as you lean on Christ. That's the idea, that's the visual that I'm trying to give here. In our little visual over here, you have the hurting person and you have us. You have Christ over here. The question always comes up, how much should I let people lean, rely on me? Uh, should I let them lean on me? And hopefully we'll be giving at least my perspective anyway, and we can interact later to get your perspective on, on what the answer to that is. I'm sure you've been in situations, people who have gone through a lot of devastations there's two main icebergs in their life. One is they don't trust anybody. So you as a friend have to be really trustworthy. And that has a lot to do with confidentiality, which we'll mention later. But also, one of the icebergs in the hurting person's life is they're just looking to prove to themselves that like everybody else, you're going to dump them after they wear you out because they've had a lot of spiritual abuse in the churches. A lot of people that are maybe wrongly motivated, they're fixers. Are you a fixer? You see a mess in someone's life and it just bothers you. You want to straighten it out. So you rush in, you start a ministry, and you're going to clean up the world. And uh, But then you see it's a little messier than you thought, and how you promise the pastor that, well, I know this, I've got that, I know how to minister here. Uh, you've got a lot at stake because your reputation is on the line. And these people, they don't clean up their lives the way you want them to, thankfully. Uh, they don't clean up their lives. Um, and and it's, it's reflecting on you. The pastor's going, well, what is going on anyway with that ministry? You know, how that, did the Bible study there? Or did, and so there's a lot of problems based on wrong motives to start out with. Because helping hurting people is a, a consuming job. It's not the once a week in and out thing. I believe that any kind of a relationship isn't the once a week in and out thing. But you can get away with it in other relationships, but you can't with hurting people. Hurting people are like in spiritual ICU. 
and they don't need somebody coming in and tripping over the respirator cord and wave so the patient is waving their arms and the person thinks they're praising the Lord or something. You can do that with another, if they're on the regular hospital ward, you can do that, but you cannot, you have to tread lightly in the lives of hurting people. They've had already too much hurt. They don't need to have you add to it. The main problem, I think, in, in a relationship with a hurting person is what I call inappropriate leaning. In our domino model, we're letting the person lean on us, and we're supposed to be leaning on Christ. What is, what is inappropriate leaning? What does it look like? Well, for one thing, maybe you're 100% of this person's support system. So when you go out of town, they collapse. Uh, they're looking to you for everything. And you just sense you're having a conflict with your family and your kids. You don't know, should I be uh, involved in these crisis times? And at the time, what do I do with my children? And they're, you know, and they're, they're saying we've had a lot of Mama Michelini's frozen dinners lately. Mom, could you, you know, maybe stay home and cook here or something? You know, um, there's all kinds of dynamics that come into play. But I think that. You can sense when this is happening. You can sense when the hurting person is looking to you for all the answers rather than to the Lord. We're going to talk about real specifics on how do you encourage anyone, anyone you're discipling. If it's been a person that's gone through a lot of tragedy in their life or someone who hasn't, how do you put help like that old song? Remember, put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters. Remember that? Showing my age here. But um, how do you do that practically? People that are hurting, they're desperate people. If if you if you can't show them a little bit of hope, they're not going to make it. That's the perspective that they have because uh, they're not doing cosmetic surgery. They're having heart surgery. And that's why it's very important that when you're ministering in a discipleship slash friend slash counseling slash whatever ministry to hurting people, you really realize the need to take great care. The common question is, how much of the time should I let them rely on me? My answer is, I'm very politically correct, never and always. <laughs> Why don't you bring it down one more to the never and always? This is, a, this is a rocket scientist answer here. By this I mean, you should never let them rely on you. By that I mean that in your mind, you're never saying, I have the answer for this person's problem. I have the answer that's needed here. I think this should be okay. So that from your perspective, you're not letting them rely on you. So that the source isn't within yourself. You might jot down Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who is among you that fears the Lord or reverences the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. How practically do you encourage people to rely on the Lord when he's the one that, that they've already thrown out with the bathwater? Where was God when I was going through that? I hate God. God hates me. I don't want anything to do with God. How do you, how are you the conduit for that life, the life of the Father? 
to that person. The hours here, never an hours. The ministry that the Lord has given you as you're a friend to a hurting person, you can always let them lean on you to the degree that you're leaning on the Lord. Because like the dominoes, if I pulled out that middle domino, the friend domino, they're not close enough to the Lord yet to get over to him. I have real problems with, uh, and I understand that in the legalities of the counseling ministry and, and the different things, but I do have problems with a, with a perceived uh, lack of involvement or coldness for pastors and counselors and people that are sitting listening to the trauma that someone has gone through and and don't touch them at all. They don't put their hand on their hand. In first place, they should probably, if you're working with a woman, there should be another woman there. But beyond that, I remember when I was reliving some horrendous things in my life and the counselor sat in his chair very far away and kept saying, well, then what happened? Well, then what happened? And after a while, and he had been very schooled in the thing that you never touch someone that you're helping. And I finally turned to him and I said, how dare you abuse me a second time by letting me again be alone as I live through this. There, we're not talking about inappropriate touching, but we're even talking in how you present yourself to the person that you're not way over here from their pain. That's really important. Let them lean on you in all the places the Lord says to let them lean on you. It's going to be different for each person. It's going to be different for each person that you're working with. But don't be afraid to follow the Lord's leading. By the way, what we, we're so used to Christianese. What does it mean to lean on the Lord? What's that all about? What does that look like to you? What does it mean to lean on the Lord? We've all memorized, lean not on your own understanding. We've known that since the third grade when they gave out those little red tickets you could buy some with. Jump up in his lap. Jump up in his lap. I love it. Think about the closeness of that. The closeness that's there. The communication that's there. The open flow between you and God. One of the things that I think we can do when we're talking about how to get up in his lap is the first item I put here. Practically, what does it look like? Deal with your own wrong motives. So we mentioned you might have a vested interest because, you know, you're a maverick. Nobody else in your church knows how to help hurting people. You've been through something in your life, and so you're a crusader for hurting people, and everybody else is doing it wrong, and, you know, you're going to prove to the pastor that, that he's on the way out in left field and you're going to get this ministry up and rolling or you're going to be working with maybe someone in the church that other people don't know what to do with. They put the notes in the in the uh, collection plate. I'm going to commit suicide this afternoon. And they send them to the pastor's wife and she says, well, now what are you getting out of this attention? You know, why are you doing this? You know, so you're going to step in and save the world. If you set out like that, it can really quickly spiral down. That's not leaning on the Lord. Are you doing it to get God's approval because you wanted, you, you really want to show him that you love him and you want to, 
Or you may be bartering. Lord, I'm faithful in my ministry to you, so maybe you could do this over here for me. You know, there's a lot of subtle ways that we can uh, enter into a ministry and not really have a sure footing on it. And if any place is going to come apart, it's when you start with wrong motives. If, by the way, you sense that there may be a mixture in your motives, that's fine. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just clear up the motives. Just say, Lord, are there anything wrong in my motives for being involved in this ministry at the church or the, you know, with the Bible studies or whatever? Is there anything ugly about me that you want me to see? Usually it has something to do with our flesh. I usually laugh because people say, well, you know, Christians can't have wicked spirits. They can be tempted, but they can't have any, anybody residing inside because the Holy Spirit's in there. And the Holy Spirit can't be there with a wicked spirit. Well, besides there's no verse that says that, I often think, well, what do you think our un, you know, unsanctified flesh looks like? A lot of times mine almost looks like a wicked spirit. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is in there with me uh, as he begins to work with me. But we need to be sure that we're not ministering from a fleshly basis. Because like I said, you can get away with it, quote unquote, if you're in another ministry where there's people that are pretty well along, they've got things rolling in their direction, in their favor. But you can't do that with a person who really is hanging on by a thread. You have to be very, very careful. So just clear out your wrong motives with the Lord. The second one, be clear on your role. You are an ambulance driver, not a doctor. You get the patient to the doctor. You drive him to the hospital where they have all the equipment to fix him. You're an ambulance driver, not a doctor. Some people say, well, you know, do I have to, like if I'm working with maybe some of the most damaged hurting people on the Richter scale, they'd probably be folks like I was, the DID, MPD folks who had gone through ritual abuse. There's not much left in their lives. They're much not, there's... I often think Satan works like a, like what you see when you, you pull a refrigerator out, the second old refrigerator you have in the garage, and behind it there's this little exoskeleton of a shriveled up bug, you know. I think that's what Satan tries to do in the lives of those who he tries to destroy. He interjects, injects something in their life and sucks out their life and just kind of leaves them as a shell. When those people show up at your church, you should really praise the Lord because those are the funnest people to work with. Those are the best people to sit back and see God work. Because it says, unless God build a house, they labor in vain who build it. You maybe can take credit for some of the other stuff that gets built. But there ain't nobody going to help them except God. And he does. He shows up. It's cool. It is really cool. It's like being on the front row of the theater and watching God work. But do you have to understand all you know psychological things about did you have to know what an ab reaction is or what co-consciousness is or you know i don't have any psychological training how do i no you have to be a person who has their ear open to the lord and in whom god has placed a heart and a passion for people who are rebuilding their lives that's all you need my my feeling is very strong that counseling and discipleship are different sides of the same coin um, because it's, it should be the same thing. It should be infusing truth in a person's life and being some of what Jim Wilder's been talking about, being the, that, that when they come in, it's very clear you're glad that they are. You're very glad that they are. And you can show that to them. Number three, keep reminding them that God 
not you, has the answer to the problems. Now, by this, please understand me. I don't mean throwing spiritual hand grenades. That's like, well, all things work together for good. Splat, you know. Trust God, you know, splat. Just kind of throwing out something. If you ever want to get rid of your Christianese um, language, that is kind of a hybrid thing. It works real good among us. But if you're trying to talk to somebody who's not part of our club, it doesn't go very far because they don't understand it. You can't use Christianese with hurting people because quick quick uh, answers only just cause more wounding in their life. Well, how do you do that? Well, when they come to you and they say this, that, and the other, why not ask them, well, have you talked to God about this? What does he say? God is really good at showing up. He's really good at answering questions. I was working with a lady, and she had been in, involved in ritual abuse, and I met with her just for an hour when I was traveling to California, and, and she was really ridden by false guilt. She was saying, um, you know, if I'd only gotten there sooner, they wouldn't have done that to those children. If I'd only got, well, how old were you? Or 10. You know, well, if I'd only gotten there sooner. I kept saying, it wasn't your fault. It wasn't your fault. You, you were just a child under the circumstances things were out of your control, it wasn't your choice, and I wasn't getting anywhere, and probably uh, in a moment of leaning on the Lord, which I should have been all along, I said, well, why don't you ask God to, to tell you what he thinks about that night? So she said, okay, so I, she said it out loud, she said, God, what do you want me to know about that night? And she didn't even get to the word night, and she lit up and said, it wasn't my fault, it wasn't my fault, you know. Well, see, I can't see how the enemy has boxed in that lady and has the whole web of lies to keep her snared. And But the Lord does. He does a, what, a Hail Mary around the end? I don't know what it's called. He does something around the side to get past those lies and bring his truth. And when God tells somebody something, there's ain't nobody going to get rid of it, you know. Um, it's there. It's really there. So you can be doing that. Well, what if they say, well, I haven't talked to him for 10 years and I'm not intending to. I hate him. Okay, um, that's where I was. Um, fortunately, there were people, first of all, who weren't afraid when they didn't feel they had to answer the question, where was God? They didn't feel pressurized by that at all. And you shouldn't be either. You should just say, I don't know. I can't understand it. Why didn't you ask God that? Well, my feeling is... One of the things that happens when there's a lot of overwhelming violence in a person's life, physically and spiritually and emotionally, our wills become, in a sense, paralyzed. And it never made a matter before if we decided anything, if we chose anything. It didn't change it. So there's a there's almost a passivity in our will that I think is real key when you're discipling people, anyone, whether they've been through a hurting experience or not, to activate their will in agreement with the truth. I said to one lady, do you, uh, would you like to pray? Why don't you ask God? She said, no, I'm not talking to him. I said, okay, well, would you mind if I prayed for you? No, I don't want you to pray for me. I said, uh, could you pray inside very loudly? No, you know, I don't want to pray. Could you pray inside very softly? No. I was backing up, trying to get her to a place where she could engage her will and agree in the direction of the truth. So I said, do you mind if I pray that if God wants you to be willing, that he will help you be willing? Well, okay, she said. So I started there. And then I said, uh, she said, well, maybe I could talk to him, but, you know, and so she said, uh, he's not going to talk back to me. 
so she did talk using a few choice four-letter words and things, which really reflected where she where she was at with God. And I wasn't aghast, like, you can't talk to God like that, you know. Just, you know, I just told her, come to God. So she did. Um, and she began to pour that out. And for the first time in years, she began to cry. And the dam of resistance and barrier between her and her father in heaven began to break. And then God spoke to her and told her something, you know. I mean, when you're sitting there watching God work, it, it just, that's why I say, especially, that's why, invite all the DIDs, MPDs you can to your church. Because it's so um, awesome to see God work. But also, you need to be working with the people in your church because in the spiritual ICU unit that we're talking about, ministry, the DID folks, they're, they're right there only a breath away from not making it. And you need to be extra careful that you can be in your church someone who, in, in essence, trains the people how to be sensitive to the Lord's leading so that when those folks come, they're not further abused spiritually. I was on the radio a couple of days ago, and a lady called in, and she said the, the topic the man wanted to talk about, the guest or the, the host, was spiritual warfare. I said, okay, so we're talking. And lady called and said, you know, I don't, you know, you sound the same as those. I had a church, and they were casting out demons from me, and they had the oil around, and they would, and they just, everything had a name, and everything was a demon, and they just drove over me, and it's taken me years to recover, and you're just saying the same thing. I could very honestly say to her, please don't put me in the same category with those folks. That's what I call spiritual abuse. She had come out from that deliverance ministry feeling her her own person had been violated because all they were interested in doing was stopping out demons. Uh, so please, when the, the folks come to your church, do a little advanced work to make sure that there are people there that can really embrace these folks because I tell you, they have the best seat to see what God is doing in possible things. I think also, um, when you think of the man of the Gerasanes, remember him? He was... Well, actually, that was what described me. When I was at college, there was a regular part and then a rather bizarre part, and I was similar to the man of the Gerasanes at times. But he ran up to Jesus, and I believe that that was his way of saying, help me. Please don't get the idea that whatever the person says on the outside is what they're really feeling on the inside. I went to a, a leader of a major Christian ministry during that time, and he said, do you want help? And I heard myself at that time. The demonic was so strong in me. The demon was was right up at attention. He and the man thought it was me. And I said, No, I don't want any help. I don't want God. So the man said, Well, you you're never going to get. It. He said, Why don't you go ahead and commit suicide then? Because you're never going to get any help till you want it. And inside, I was yelling, Please, I want help. I want help. But I couldn't verbalize that. So don't go by what you see. This is not a WYSIWYG situation, computer people. What you see is not what you get. Uh, the fact that they still keep coming to your class, the fact that they still keep showing up, is, is a sign that they realize something that you have there is needed. Um, we have a R&R class on Monday nights at our church. It's a year-long discipleship program. I mentioned it there. And we have uh, just a variety. It's about 30 folks in it and a variety of needs. We have about six or seven MPDs in there, others that have uh, had trouble with their minds because of drug use, others that are grief recovery, alcohol rehab, 
I mean, just all kinds of different things. But even when they come to class and say things that maybe we would consider inappropriate for any other Bible study, they're coming. And those that come with a chip on their shoulder because they're cautious. They're, they're no dummies. They've been burned too many times in churches to just show up and just say, well, here I am, do say whatever you want, do whatever you want. Um, even when they come with a chip on their shoulder, they begin to see it's safe to say what they believe and nobody's going to just be horrified. They have not had to do CPR on me or any of the leaders since the class started. They've not fainted dead away when somebody says, I think God the Father sucks. You know, we have not, you know, passed out or anything like that. Um, and I think we need to be real careful that you ask God to help you see past some of the blusteriness or some of the total aloofness get, can often come in a person's life when they've been damaged. Ask the Lord to help you see that person the way he sees them. What if you're already in too deep? Now, I, like I said, I don't want to make hurting folks sound like they have leprosy, but these are desperate situations and they may be coming to you because they're just they're just at the end they're on the verge of insanity they've been there before the only option they had was they went into a mental hospital now they're coming to you they may cling to you in a way that really isn't the healthiest for you or them how do you backtrack well the first point that i have here i want to be sure and explain um Get God's plan on how to redefine your relationship. This actually doesn't necessarily just for hurting people. It's for any relationship you have. People that have been through a lot in their life haven't had time to learn, sometimes, to learn a lot of social graces. They were just busy staying alive. So they couldn't be, you know, I, I, I hope I'm not casting aspersions on this church when I mention it every time, but... It kind of points out to me the dichotomy. A lady came to the uh, service and she said, well, I'm looking for a Bible study group, but I can't go to the women's fellowship. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, they just don't seem to be talking about anything in the women's fellowship that I'm interested in. And I said, well, what kind of things do they do? And she said, well, we had a big thing on how, how to, uh, what was it? It was something about how to use fine china at the table or something. And that that must be, that, that was good for some folks, but for, for my friends, it wasn't making, they were wondering, how do you resist Satan? How do you hang on to God when you hate him? How do you keep from going insane? And so I think whether it's a pers- hurting person or anyone else that you're working with or discipling, ask God, Lord, where do you want this to go? Where can I help this person plug in to the church at the appropriate time? It may be at the beginning there's no involvement with the church because of the abuse that's happened in, in churches, spiritual abuse. But you need to ask the Lord to redefine it. Sec- my second choice, my second point comes out of my own experience. Don't ask them to go cold turkey, but change gradually. What if, what if you realize that you got into this discipleship, one-on-one discipleship, the pastor came and he said, well, we have somebody, I don't know what to do with it, can you see it? Um, they show, show up at your door, you get involved, and you realize later that your motive has been to prove that you yourself are healed now, so that you can be placed in ministry, that you're ready for ministry. So you've got that agenda going, and so because of that, 
you may let the relationship take on dynamics that it shouldn't. Um, maybe you pushed aside other responsibilities that God has given you so that you can be over here and you really shouldn't have done that. Well, you begin to clear up, get those motives cleared up, then what do you do with the person that you've allowed to lean on you inappropriately? Do you just become the domino that steps out of the way suddenly? That, that can be one of the most hurtful things in a relationship is to be developing and learning how to trust someone and then they go, well, you know, I just think I don't like the way this is going and I, I don't think, you know, this is going to work. Um, you as a mature believer need to ask the Lord, how can I, I don't even need to say to them maybe that, how can I, by my actions, begin to redefine the relationship in a way that would be healthy, that wouldn't damage them further? Third, be honest and open as the Lord leads. But with this, we should add something. In other words, this is saying, be very honest with the person. You know, uh, I've been in relationships that the Lord has really been honing my ability to say no in. I'm not real good at that. Um, but, well, you're not meeting my needs. You know, I don't know how many times people have called and, you know, raked me over the coals. And you're just never, da 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 you know. And for, that sometimes is a red flag to me that maybe they're looking to me in a way that they shouldn't be. But I don't just want to step out of the picture. But I may say to them, you know, I, I don't want to cause you more anguish. You've already been beat up enough. But sometimes I feel trapped because I know the Lord has this with my family or has this and the other going on. And I don't really know. I have a hard time sometimes saying no when you're calling me and asking me to go do something because I don't want to hurt you. Now, if someone came and said that to you, that's much more absorbable then, well, the Lord showed me that our relationship is totally inappropriate, so we got to break this off. You know, uh, that you can you're basically redefining it, but the first way is totally different. And does that make sense? Just be very careful with that. But also with this, pray against distortions and filters from what you say. You may be saying to the person, like you're on the phone, say for example, and they call and they say, you know, I'm having a really bad day. I wonder if you could pray with me. And just then. You're finishing writing down the last thing on the grocery list you were writing, and so you're thinking, and you're thinking, okay, now, what, what was that last, was that bread, what was that? They hear this tiny little lack of focus. They go, she hates me. She doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. She's going to dump me. I better dump her first. I mean, it's the enemy has put tremendous filters so that when you speak, it gets all twisted and then reaches the person. You may have spent 99 hours helping a person and being there for them. And then once, you may have said, I guess it'll be all right. And that once, I guess it'll be all right, and the attitude that came by that, that will be the 99%. And all the hours that you've spent pouring yourself out helping a person will be the 1%. Then you need to know how to deal with the flesh. <laughs> because if you're doing it for their approval, anybody else's approval but God's, it'll be much harder to handle that. Well, don't they know I've been to know? You know, this kind of stuff. It really gets down to the nuts and bolts of it. But really be aware, the enemy has placed in their life filters and distorters and all kinds of things, magnifiers to magnify one event, maybe one failure on your part, 
And it's used to just, it sticks in the mind in the exact wording that you said that that day. What you can do if you realize that has happened, you can say, Lord, how, we just come to you, how do you want that uprooted? Uproot that in their life. So that it, is there a distortion there? And when the person comes to well, I can see that you don't want to, want to know me anymore and I don't want to be your friend anyway because you, you know. Sit down with them and say, well, wait, I think, you know, there, there just seems to be a distortion. You know, you know how much I care for you. You know how much I've tried to be here for you. Let's go to the Lord and say, is there a distortion about what was said that night? And then praying with it, asking the Lord to show the person the real truth about that. And see, because at that point, pointing out, well, don't you remember, you know, I've already, we've had four sessions as a counselor here this week, and then I was six hours during midnight hours with you this week, and pointing out the facts, it doesn't make any difference, because that that twisting has occurred. And so nothing, basically, that you can say to point out, well, if I'd wanted to not be a friend, I've been hanging in there with you through thick and thin for four years, blah, blah, blah. It, it it doesn't work. You have to first just go to the Lord, because it's a spiritual event happening there. It's not a logical cerebral. The other thing you can do is to say, separate this event from something in the past, Lord. In other words, you know, the enemy may have, you may have been in the flesh there when they called and you were so frustrated about something else and you just said a certain sentence, like, I suppose so. Those particular words may have been said when they were way back here and it doesn't have anything to do with your relationship but it may have resulted in great pain and great trauma in their life you don't know that those were the exact words that they remember from when they were three so they're not just dealing with you and your event they're dealing with back there so you can ask the Lord would you divide the past from the present Lord just divide it and talk with the person as well is there anything in what I said I mean, I'm having trouble realizing why you think I just have given up on you. Is that, is, does anything come to mind when you heard me say that? And ask the Lord as well to bring something to mind. And it may be, well, that's exactly the word that was used. Blah, blah, blah. So that there's a, there's a, uh, a separation of those two. The person can't separate that automatically because it's not a cerebral memory it's not here it's in the limbic system it's just a, an emotional response that comes rushing forward i remember that uh i was uh living with a family uh, right after i got out of college and i didn't do well with men anyway so it was a real big thing to have hear men's footsteps around the house but i had gradually gotten over that without committing homicide so but then one day, uh, there was a friction, some friction in the house, and I was trying to explain something to this guy, and his wife was there, and and he got frustrated with his something that he was dealing with, and he said, "Let's just hang it up." You know, in other words, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, that filter was in place, and I heard, "Let's just hang her up," and that took me way back to there, and. Literally, it was a miracle that I did not commit homicide at that point. It was just the Lord's grace because the rage within me was not dealing with then. It was dealing with way back then. So if someone had said, well, see, now here's what the problem is. You're connecting the past with the present. <laughs> no, that wasn't going to work because it was this huge rush of violence and hatred and, and rage that had nothing to do with my thought processes.
forth constantly, uh, I'll see, constantly reassure them that you are there for the long haul. I often say this, I know you know this in your head, but let me say it anyway. By God's grace, he's going to work you through this and I'm going to be by your side. I'm not going to abandon you. Because in their mind they know that uh, somewhat, but in their emotions they're just sure. Because look at their history. You know, in my own life, the total unpreparedness of the church to deal with me. I went to a counselor. He was sexually inappropriate with me, a Christian counselor. So I left there in my mind that God had planted the thought, God has the answer to this, whatever it is. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a demonic thing. God has the answer. He obviously didn't. So I went to my pastor, and he uh, he came in and announced after I had told his wife that evening all that I experienced. I said, I don't know what this is. It's this, this force in me that just is murderous. I don't know what it is. The counselor had told me that that was the real me, that I should just let that out. It was ex- suppressed anger, so I should just let that be me. So I knew he wasn't quite on it. But the pastor said, uh, well, my wife has told me what you've told her, and I think you're a dangerous person. And we're, we've called the mental hospital, and they're going to lock you up. And I hope you stay locked up the rest of your life, because you can, you're too dangerous to be around people. I don't know what his issues are or what the, the uh, enemy's work was there in his life. So that was gone for me. So there were so many places uh, that got to the very end. I'd attempted suicide many times, but I had, uh, for one more time, I'd stolen some medications that would be lethal to me. And uh, I, I thought, well, everybody gets one call. Let me call a pastor and see if he can help me. So I ran my finger down the phone book, and I stopped. I don't even, to this day, remember what the pastor's name was. And I called him, and I said, look, here's the situation. There's something wrong with me, but it has to do with some sort of demonic problem. It's not a mental problem. There's something going on demonically. And if you say you can't help me, I'm going to commit suicide. And he said, well, there's a lot that I've heard about that going on in churches today. He said, uh, but I'm afraid I can't help you. And he had used the same phrase that I had said, if you say you can't help me. So I knew it once later looking back on it. I knew again it was a setup of the enemy. But at the time I said, now, do you understand that if you say you can't help me, I'm going to end my life? And he said, yes, I do, and I feel very bad about that. So as I was putting the phone down, just when I got down to put it put it in the holder, he was going, wait, 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 wait a minute. And he said, uh, I heard a missionary last month talk about witchcraft in Africa. Maybe they know something about it. So if you want to hear the rest of the story, you have to buy the chain line. But anyway, uh, that was mean, wasn't it? I used to see if I made it or not. <laughs> but let me say under this, Look for clues that they need this reassurance. Look for clues that they need to be reassured that you're not going to abandon them. And be very ready to apologize. You know, when you called last last night, I, I'm afraid I was just really distracted. I had had this day and the kids and they were, and I was trying, I'm really sorry, if, you know, if you picked up any hesitation in my voice because certainly it wasn't toward you. Being ready to say that. Clues might just be, you know, well, you know, you're probably, you're probably going to hate me for this, but such and such, you know, or whatever. There can be different clues that not their mind, but their emotions, or if they're DID, the little ones inside need to be reminded that you really do care for them. But under this as well, I'd like to really say a word about confidentiality. And if I ever get on a soapbox, this is the time, because 
Um, we really do a bad job of this in our churches, I think. Pastors or counselors, they go home, they're wise, they talk to their wives. Uh, so their wives know what's going on, or the de- did you hear what the deacon is you know. Um, I've developed this, uh, this uh, appointment with a wonderful counselor. Somebody, I said, I was really stressed one week, and somebody said, well, I said, you know, I, I, sometimes I wish I had a counselor that I could go to, and then it dawned on me I have a wonderful counselor. And so what I did was I said, Lord, I want to make an appointment with you tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock for an hour. So I mean, there and I talked out loud for an hour. Then I figured my time was up and the next client was coming in. No, um, just being able to say to him, you know, it just bugged me. I mean, Lord, I hear these things and this, and I was so mad at that perpetrator that had done that to that lady, and I didn't feel like, you know, I don't. she wanted to kill him, and I didn't want to encourage her, so I didn't know. So I'm dumping all this stuff with the Lord. And then if the Lord had given me freedom, maybe the, with the leadership that I work with in the R&R program, I, I could have gone anonymously, using anonymous things to them and say, you know, there's one situation that I think is really a suicide situation, and I think we really need to pray that the Lord's protection would be there this week. And I, have, I don't feel that after I've dumped everything with the Lord, and he's given me the okay to say it that way. I feel much better that I'm not breaking confidence. Rather than someone that you would use their wife or their husband or their other co-leaders to do that dumping on without doing that to the Lord. And it's amazing how you can come away from that time really unburdened. But also it helps you deal with your flesh. Because I think it was three weeks ago. I must, you know, it was one of those weeks where I had three separate people again calling me and saying, well, you know, you're not doing it right. You know, you're just, you're just not meeting my needs and blah, 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 you know. Well, at that point, I was dealing with some issues myself, and my flesh took advantage of me, and I was really ticked off at them. I thought, how do they, I have spent hours, and they're bugging me because of this. You know? So, yes, we all do. I know most of you don't ever have that feeling, but sometimes I do. So... I knew how devastating it would be if that flesh showed up in my relationship with them. And I said, well, you know, well, let's think this through. Now, how many times have you called me today? And how many times have I responded to you? Have I ever told you that I wouldn't listen to you? That would have been very devastating to them. So I went to the Lord with it. And I just told him, I said, that is the stupidest thing they ever said. It made me so mad when they said that. I mean, how did they get off doing like this? So I'm again unloading, and in the middle of it, the Lord began to show me what to do with that fleshly reaction that said, you can, you can, I can spend on the Lord by spending on others except if it goes past this line. And then I'm going to resent it. So he could work with me on that without damaging the situation. If you do that, I don't think there would be nearly as many problems with breaking confidentiality or, well, we need to pray, you know, for so-and-so. The, the church gossip uh, prayer chain can become the gossip line, you know. Oh, we got oh shit. Plus, those of us that work with uh, SRA, there is a very, very subtle pride that comes. And I think sometimes when we're in the front lines, we can almost get an adrenaline rush from fighting hand to hand, you know, hand to hand combat. And we say, yeah, man, and you know, good fight, you know. If you begin to enjoy the fight, you might want to double check that because there may be something more. You may be fighting in your flesh, not in the spirit. But also, there's this subtle need to explain, you know what, um, we're working with four witches, yeah, the high priest, yeah, we get that, you know. 
just this subtle need to tell people and to elevate your thing as though, you know, working with all witches and one high priest was like showing you really into it, you know. Um, really be careful against the pride that slides in there so subtly. Some of you say, well, how do you fix, how, how do you deal with the flesh? But then you see the flesh in your life in relation to your ministry. One of the things that I found, I looked at what Paul, when Paul mentions the flesh and different things, most of the time he mentions the cross of Christ. What if when we realize that we're very fleshly in the area, we just simply put, put the situation aside and we begin zeroing on in the meaning of the cross? I'm working on writing a book called The Cross of Christ in Monday Morning. The disciple, or it's a Bible study that says, what difference does it make that there was the cross of Christ when I'm making coffee on Monday morning? Can I name ten things that would be missing in my life if the cross had never happened? What, where if somebody said, I don't understand the cross of Christ, where would I take them in scripture? Do I know five verses from memory that talk about the cross? The cross is so central. And I really found that I'm not sure what the ramifications are, but when I see my own flesh interfering with the ministry that I have with people, somehow drawing away and worshiping at the cross and talking about the cross and reading verses about the cross and singing hymns about the cross, it does something. I think what it does, it puts in perspective who I am, first of all, who he is, and then who I am, and that usually doesn't leave much room for the flesh. But please be careful about the confidentiality thing. Ask the Lord for forgiveness for the times when you've dumped on your wife or your husband or the other deacons or or whatever, things that you should have never told them, and start out fresh. Assume that unless they say to you, you can tell anybody this that you want to, that they mean don't tell anybody, instead of, well, they didn't tell me I couldn't tell anybody. So everything that they said I could tell, unless they said, well, this is just between you and me. Put it the other way around. Because these folks have been been uh, run over so much it has made them distrust people. In one way, your big job assignment is to teach people how to trust again. And the way to do that is to be very, very careful. I have a, a friend that I'm ministering to in Colorado Springs right now. She's been living with me for a while. And she doesn't like people nosing into her business. So I've learned when she comes back from something, I don't say, well, how did it go? What did you say? What did you decide? Da, 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 da. Because for her, that's like invading her privacy. She, she feels violated by all the questions. She's very, she's been burned many times by Christians, and she doesn't want any news to get out about a situation. There's a time for that later when she realizes I'm not going to grill her, as she's called it, about what went on, and whereas I was just showing interest in what she was doing. The second thing we need to do in our job description is we need to be a mirror. We need to be a domino and we need to be a mirror. This is a good place to look up these verses and then we'll take a break after that. The first point under being a mirror is reflect the shepherd's heart. What does God want to do for that person that's sitting right there? Is it really possible that he can rebuild her whole life or his whole life? What practically, what is God's heart for that person? 
Look at this verse in Ezekiel. I think we'll take the time to read down through it. You might just put the uh, reference there. Unfortunately, it's kind of small there, so I hope you can read it. It's from Ezekiel 34. We have verses 1 through 5 here, 11 through 16, and 22 through 30. And the beginning is where the Lord is really upset with the shepherd, the under-shepherds, because of what they're not doing. But from it we can extrapolate what he wanted them to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. And they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. And my flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search or to seek for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the country, countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground. They will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. Therefore I will deliver my flock, and they will no longer be a prey. And I will judge between one sheep and another. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land. There's your deliverance ministry. And so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places around my hill a blessing. And I will cause showers to come down in their season. They will be showers of blessing. Also the tree of the field will yield its fruit, and the earth will yield its increase. And they will be secure on their land. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bars of their yoke, and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslave them. And they will no longer be a prey to the nations. And the beasts of the earth will not devour them. But they will live securely, and no one will make them afraid. And I will establish for them a renowned planting place, and they will not again be victims of famine in the land, and they will not endure the insults of the nations any more. Then they will know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord. Isn't that a powerful description of the heart of the shepherd? Father, as we close this part, we just... First of all, we we'll just apologize for the places where we've gone running ahead of you and thought that we had within ourselves all that was needed to minister to these dear hurting people. We take on the heart of the Savior that's described here and that's pictured here, Lord. 
And we do too, Father, apologize for the times when from whatever motives, whether it be pride or overwhelming, we've, we've, we've broken the confidentiality and trust of these folks. We apologize for that, Lord. We pray you would show us. Put a guard at our mouth, Lord. Teach us how to dump things out to you rather than to other people. Father, I do pray that you would replace the places in our lives where there's um, presuppositions and things that we believe that are hindering us in our ministry of discipleship. We're willing, Father, to have you show us things just the way you show the people we help things. We especially stand, Father, against that pride that would just get in there so subtly and want to just glory in uh, ourselves rather than you. We ask, Father, you'd make us alert to it. Show us when it sneaks in. And as well, Father, some of us have believed the lie that we're inadequate for the ministry you've called us to. I pray, Father, that you would speak your truth into our lives and help us see that our adequacy is in Christ. Encourage those that need to be encouraged, Father. And we ask, all of us ask, that even in the second half, that you would um, plant things in our minds and hearts that would be just like this mirror, that we would all we would be would be a reflection of you, that nothing that we use in our ministry tools or anything would originate in ourselves, but that you would be the source of it all. We're just glad, Father, you've allowed us to look into people's lives that we can see, had it not been the Lord, the enemy would have swallowed us alive. But blessed be the Lord, who has not given us to be torn by their teeth. Our bird has, our, our soul has escaped as a bird out of the snare of the trapper. The snare is broken and we have escaped. We thank you that you've allowed us, allowed us to see that happen in people's lives. We're just available, Father, to you. Just in whatever way, keep working in us to deal with the hurting places we have. We just leave ourselves in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't we take a 10-minute stretch break here? We don't have organized calisthenics, but whatever you need to do to kind of wake up. In three ways, and I think they really are significant for what we're doing. It's a reflecting surface. Secondly, it's something that gives a faithful representation of something else. That sounds like those ambassador verses, doesn't it? And third is a pattern for imitation. When we had the question, how much should I let people lean on me, we need to remember Paul that said, be imitators of me, even as I am of Christ Jesus. Well, that sounds like you'd have to really be daring to tell people that, wouldn't you? Just watch me and live the way I live because I try to watch God and live the way he wants me to live. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be a domino. We have to let people lean on us as we lean on Christ. We have to be a mirror and reflect the shepherd's heart. But we also have to be a splint. I guess this is a newfangled kind of splint. I sent someone out on our staff to get a splint, and this is what they had, so I guess this is it. I was thinking more of a some kind of a metal thing, you know, if you've broken your finger. A splint is a protective surrounding support while healing is taking place. Maybe we can go down one more. A protective supporting surrounding support while the Lord's healing is taking place. If you're ministering to deeply wounded people, you'll probably run into a crisis or two somewhere along the line. 
Those that laugh have been there, I'm sure. Um, if you're not good at handling crises, crises, I guess the word is, you might want to work in the, well, don't work in the nursery. That's full of crisis. Let's see. Where else would you work? I don't know. The library? There you go. Lucy's a librarian at her church, so I can say that safely. Um, how you respond in the middle of the crisis reflects how well you know the shepherd, by the way, I think. And it also reflects how much of the responsibility you've taken on your own shoulders that really shouldn't be there. You are not really the person between them and death. Again, you're the ambulance driver getting them to the spiritual hospital, to the doctor who can keep them alive. We have a, a sheet that I brought along with us. It's, it's at the uh, Lydia Press book table. You may want to pick up one if you're interested. Uh, it's special issues of suicide for MPDs. In our Barnabas, our, I mean our R&R Rebuilding and Renewing Discipleship Program, we train the small group leaders and the large group leaders of how to deal with suicide threats uh, because we do have them on occasion. But I don't know if this is a controversial conclusion on this paper or not, it, but I, from my experience, this is very much where I feel things are at in terms of MPDs who talk about suicide. First of all, if anybody talks about suicide, don't be stupid enough to say, to believe that whatever myth that, well, if they talk about it, they won't really do it. They get that out of your head right away. Or also, don't go to them and just say, say to them, what are you getting out of this pain? You know, that was another school of, you know, fix-it people that knew how to say that to hurting people. So you do take it seriously. But the one thing that I think is the difference between an MPD who is on the verge of suicide and another, say, a bipolar or someone who has some chemical uh, chemical problem in addition to the spiritual and emotional overload. I don't believe you should take any of the control away from the MPD who is mentioning suicide. In other words, you can encourage them, have you told your counselor about it? And if they say no, I feel very strongly you do not go without their permission and share that with their counselor. Now, I don't know if the counselor is here to disagree with me or not, but the reason that I'm doing that is MPD to me, the MP, I've never known of an MPD committing suicide. Now that doesn't mean that the anguish level isn't there and that there aren't attempts. But what I'm saying is, I believe that when a bipolar person who has spiritual issues going on, emotional overload, and a chemical imbalance moves towards suicide, they're on much shakier ground than a person, an MPD, who where there's spiritual, there's spiritual implications and there's an emotional overload. They did autopsies on people who committed suicide, and all of them had zero serotonin in their brains. Now, that sort of tells me that if you're in a situation with a person where there isn't, besides everything else, there's a chemical imbalance that's going on there. The enemy can take advantage of that in a way that he may not take advantage of in this other situation. Because the truth of it is, if an MPD person is still alive, that shows they're a fighter, and that shows that God is hanging on to them, or else they wouldn't even be there. It doesn't lessen the seriousness of the suicide attempt, but what I'm saying is the issue when they come to you with it is trust. When you've been overwhelmed physically with someone stronger than you, or emotionally or spiritually, everything in your life has been out of control. That's why when you disciple MPDs, 
leave the control in their court, even on this issue. I would say to that person, you know, have you told your counsel? Have you told her? No, I haven't. Well, I think, I mean, you have had enough anguish in your life. I would, I just hate to think of you causing yourself harm. Can I tell your counselor? If they say no, talk with them further. But don't, I believe, don't take the control of that out of their hand. Because every time I've seen that done, where the control is left with the person, there's been a successful bypass of the suicide attempt. Because they know, they they know, for example, oh, okay, they go, to, they they talk to somebody, so and so is going to commit suicide. Well, it's their legal obligation to take action, so they end up in the mental hospital where who knows what happened last time they were there. You have that hanging over your head, and you're you're almost pushed more toward desperate measures. But if they know that their life is in their hands, not in your hands, or not in broken confidentiality over here. I believe it can really significantly not only prevent the suicide attempt, but also build a trust, build trust there that will really be a foundation for further healing. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't any chemical problems. If you've had your adrenaline button stuck on since you were three and weren't sure that you were going to be alive every morning, that your father may kill you during the night, you're going to have chemical imbalances. I'm not saying that, but I'm talking about, say, for example, someone who is, has been diagnosed as having a genuine uh, major chemical imbalance as compared to someone where there's emotional overload, there's spiritual bondage going on. The other thing is that um, I think the best, love is never wasted. The best thing you can do when an MPD talks about suicide is genuinely, not flippantly with the spiritual hand grenade verses, tell them what it would mean to you if they ended their life. You know, I would be so devastated. I mean, you are my friend. I've gotten to know you and I've gotten to love you. To think of life without you being here. I mean, I would be devastated. Please don't do this. As well, speak the truth. You know those people that you know your father and your uncles and all that, they would be smiling right now to see that they'd driven you to this. They would be glad if you did this. So put yourself on the Lord's side in the terms of choosing life. And it's not wasted. Why would you end your life if you knew that the person standing, you genuinely believe that the person standing in front of you really cared? I've never met anybody that goes ahead and does it when that's in place. So, like I said, you may not agree with it, but from my perspective, you may want to pick this up. It has some few other suggestions as well. Uh, I think the last line is kind of summarizing it. Remember at all times that within yourself, you do not have the resources to prevent a suicide, but you do have a lifeline to the one who can. So I think that's real important to remember. Well, we said we are going to take a minute or two for questions. We better stop for a minute and do that. Are there any questions on what we covered in the first session as well as any of this? Any comments about the suicide thing we just mentioned? Mm-hmm. Wait, we have a mic coming. You get to be reporter for a day or something here with this mic. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what happened. Uh, we were working with an MPD and uh, 
the Lord was bringing her into integration himself. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, she decided she didn't want to go there. Mm -hmm. And about three months later, we got a letter from her daughter saying that she was dead. Mm -hmm. And we we went through everything that we had done and mm -hmm. I mean we're not perfect yeah. far from perfect but the nearest we could tell is she chose not integration I mean after going through all our notes and the videos she balked at integration and she felt comfortable with all the different parts mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you had any experience in that area at all I mean yeah. My wife was devastated, sure. to say the least, and I really felt sad about it, but at the same time, we can't take responsibility for other people's actions. If sure. she indeed did uh, commit suicide, I sure. think she did. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked to the daughter yeah. yet. but Well, it's kind of unfair for me to make comments no. specifically about that, but if I could make general comments, yeah, that's I really believe that there was something else going on there because the, the fear of integration and sometimes it's not in your case but other cases where integration is presented as well those parts die or they go away or something I define integration is they take their rightful place um, that that often there are fears that come about integration plus the fact that with integration you think of your own life how you were able to grow emotionally you develop social skills you develop skills for handling um, uh, difficult situations you develop skills to, to conf how to confront situations it especially during the teenage years you learned a whole lot about yourself and this and that well if with an MPD suddenly they are on the scene for the first time and they may be 35 45 and they have to learn all those skills no longer when they have a, a terrifying thing can they sort of say uh, automatically say well so-and-so deals with that that's their department so they're working with that. I don't have to feel that. I don't have to deal with that. It's sort of like if if you were colorblind all your life and suddenly not only were you, did you see in Technicolor, but everything were some of those metallic colors that glistened and everything was so bright. That kind of a, uh, event occurs when the person has the final integration. And I think sometimes there's not the appropriate training of how to view that and how to function with that. Um, and I'm not at all saying, because I know you, I'm not saying that's the, the situation in your case. But I would really wonder if something else, even chemically, was going on there. I really think so. Any other time? One of the points you made was to constantly assure them that you'll be there for them. Um, scenario. Someone has uh, a difficulty, maybe not a crisis, but a difficulty. They try to reach you, and for whatever reason, you're not available. You're not there. Mm -hmm. They they cannot be in touch with you. Mm -hmm. How do you reassure them in the future that you will constantly be there for them mm -hmm. when you weren't at that time? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. One of the things I encourage people to do is to talk to the person they're discipling or helping and teach them how to build a fence around what's happening and by that I mean you have to remember I found most people that have had a lot of traumatic events in their life are very creative people 
they 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 view things they they see things in technicolor but so you can use word pictures a lot with them but say for example that the person has been at the grocery store and something there triggers that person and they're having an emotional volcano inside and they call you and they can't get a hold of you or whatever what we're saying when you tell them you'll be there for them all the time doesn't mean that every time they call they'll immediately get through to you and you maybe have to explain that to them but you can teach them right at that time say lord put a put a put a fence around this put a gate around this memory put a gate around this volcano take charge of this right now lord i can't see my counselor i can't see my friend whatever and talk with them about what to do in that situation especially when the person is very fragile and also afterwards say you know i'm really sorry you couldn't get a hold of me but don't especially if there's some issues of manipulation that go on where the person wants you to be be more to them than the lord has said to be to them don't feel that you have to explain and well see now because the reason wasn't so and and i really you know don't take on any of that just know what the lord wants you to be and then be that